You're listening to Special Education Matters, a regular podcast about things that matter in special education. I'm your host, Michael Bull, and I am the proud father of an 18-year-old boy with autism. Having a child with special needs adds a whole extra layer of concerns and to-dos to the regular course of raising a child. One of those concerns may be if you should have a special needs trust as part of the long-term plan for your child. I talked today with attorney John Lansing about special needs trusts, who needs them, the different types, and more. Enjoy the conversation. John Lansing, thanks so much for joining us on the program today. My pleasure. Happy to be here. I'm glad to have you here, and we get to talk about an important subject. We're going to talk about special needs trusts, which is something valuable to anybody who has a child with special needs. Interestingly, though, you're an elder law attorney, but as we know, uh, special needs people with special needs aren't always old. How, do, how does that? How do you end up doing special needs trusts yet be classified as an elder law attorney? How does that happen? It's just a, a funny quirk in the law. There's there's issues that come up when you lack capacity or when there are you know issues with capacity, whether you're eight years old or 20 years old or 80 years old, and those tend to fall under the elder law umbrella mm-hmm. in the U.S. So if you need a special needs trust, you usually go to an elder law attorney, sometimes to an estate planning attorney that feels comfortable with them, but usually to an elder law attorney because they deal with seniors and with adults with diminished capacity. And so some of the same capacity issues come up when you're a young person and when you're a senior. Okay. So if I'm a parent and I have a child with special needs, uh, like maybe, why don't you give us an understanding, just a general, let's start with just a general understanding of what is a special needs trust and why would I need one as a parent? So usually it comes up when someone is worried about how to set aside and shelter money for their son or daughter or sibling or something like that. So let's say it's me and I have a son with special needs and I know that in the future he might need Medicaid or in California it's Medi-Cal and mm-hmm. want him to have you know, the, the safety net of Medicaid and I also want him to have SSI. So I've got to be aware of that $2,000 threshold, right? Where he's not allowed to have any money over the $2,000 limit. Okay. So I know I can't just put, you know, $100,000 in an account in my son's name because that kicks him off the SSI and kicks him off Medicaid because it's over the $2,000. Mm-hmm. The, the conventional way, you know, the normal way that people are allowed to shelter money for someone who's on benefits like SSI and Medicaid is to put the money in a special needs trust. So a special needs trust is just a vehicle to hold money that the government says, okay, fine, you're allowed to keep that money as long as it's in that special needs trust vehicle. If it's in there, it's safe, and you can keep your SSI and your Medicaid. So it's the way the government lets you keep your benefits while still sheltering money at the same time. So, and Go ahead. Oh, I guess my question is why? Like, Why do we even have to have this vehicle if it's just sort of a, a workaround to the existing law? Why not just be allowed to have the money if you're a person with special needs? Because the government's perspective is – if you've got a bunch of money in the, the bank, if someone gives you $50,000, then why should we, the government, pay for your, your food and shelter, which is what the SSI payment is for, mm-hmm. and why should we pay for your health services if you've got $50,000 in the bank and anyone else would need to use that to pay for their food and shelter and the health services? So that's okay. the rationale. Okay. 
But but they so, allow the special needs trust instead, though. Right. So the special needs trust is the way that the government says, okay, fine, we acknowledge that people out there want to set aside money. Usually when they pass away, they want to shelter some money and an inheritance in a trust for a young person with special needs. And we're acknowledging that people should be allowed to do that. And we're giving them this one, this one approach to do it. So usually it comes up in the estate planning context where you're trying to set up your trust or you're doing your will and you've got two kids and one of them has special needs and you're concerned about the SSI and the Medicaid, the other kid doesn't. And so you say, I'm leaving half my estate to Timmy and it's going to him outright. I'm leaving half my estate to Johnny and Johnny has to worry about the SSI rules and the Medicaid rules. So his share is going in a special needs trust. So that's most often when it comes up is when a client's worried about when they pass away, how they leave the assets that, that they can afford to leave behind to their kid with special needs while protecting the SSI and protecting the Medicaid. Okay. So I'm listening to this podcast and I go, hmm, okay, well, it sounds like that's something I need to do. So I walk into your office and I sit down and say, John, like, how does this work? What are, what, what are the next steps to get this going? What, is, what does right. it mean to me? So usually you'd come in and talk to an attorney about something like this when you're already thinking about setting up a will or a trust. So if you came in, you and I sit down and you say, you want to leave your assets um, mm-hmm. in thirds to your three kids, right? And I'd explain that you don't have to set up a special needs trust now if you don't want to. You could set it up now, or you could set up your trust to say that your assets go a third to one child, a third to the other child, and then a third to a special needs trust that's created when you die to hold the one-third share. Uh, You can also set it up currently. So let's say you tell me you want to set up a special needs trust now because there's other people in your family that want to leave assets to your young person with special needs, right? Mm -hmm. So we set it up. We're going to call it the Jimmy special needs trust. So you set up, or you tell me you want to set it up, and we prepare the Jimmy special needs trust. And then you tell your family members, okay, the Jimmy special needs trust is set up. So everybody who wants to leave something to him or who, who might at some point want to leave a gift to him, their own documents point to Jimmy's special needs trust. So grandpa's trust or grandpa's will says, I leave $50,000 to the Jimmy special needs trust. Uh, okay. So the, the money funnels into the one Jimmy special needs trust. So you don't have a bunch of people going to the trouble of setting these up. Okay. That makes sense. Yeah, yeah, it does. And so that again, you're back to the concept of the vehicle where you have different vehicles for holding the assets and it goes into the right. one that works best strategically for that, for that right. kid based on their needs. Right. And there's kind of two general types of special needs trust. Mm-hmm. And I'm just going to give you the, the bare bones. There's what's called a third party special needs trust. And that's where any third party, meaning you or I or grandpa or anyone else who's leaving money to Jimmy's special needs trust is leaving it to a third party special needs trust. We're all third parties. Okay. If, if Jimmy was in a car accident and there was a million dollar settlement, that money is Jimmy's because he's the one who was injured, right? In the law and a lawsuit was filed. And so the benefit from that settlement is payable to Jimmy. So that's his money. So that's what's that's what would necessitate a first party special needs trust. So if it's 
if the person with a disability has their own money, whether through a personal injury settlement or through an inheritance or something like that, then you do a first party special needs trust. If anyone else wants to set aside money for Jimmy, anyone else at all, then it's a third party special needs trust. And they're two different types. Okay. So as a parent, then what am I looking to do? Which one? So, so if it's just you and you're just thinking about, okay, I want to set things up. So if anything happens to me and my wife, then we've got a plan in place for our kids. Then that would be a third party special needs trust because you're leaving your money to Jimmy. So the only time you worry about the first party special needs trust is if Jimmy inherited money or if Jimmy was in a, a car accident or there was a, a medical malpractice and Jimmy was awarded funds, then that would be the first party special needs trust. Okay. So, so in a typical case, it sounds like as a parent, the third party is what a parent right. would be interested in. Right. And I only brought that up. I didn't want to overcomplicate but if you look on the internet or you talk to people about special needs trusts, that's a big distinction that'll come up. So it's it's better to have that little bit of knowledge so that when you're researching this, you'll say, ah, okay, that's what he was talking about. That's the that's that other kind of special needs trust because it they're actually pretty common. Okay, so but a lawyer, as soon as you would walk in and sit down, it would steer you in the right direction, I would guess. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Is a special needs trust something you could do on your own? Like, for example, before I had a lawyer do a, my special needs trust for my son. and But before that, I used willmaker.com and, you know, made my will. That seemed pretty, it would seem pretty simple, right? So is this yeah. something, is a special needs trust something somebody could possibly do on their own or they really need somebody to help them? I think you need somebody to help you. I haven't heard of a document preparation uh, company, like a LegalZoom type company, that mm-hmm. prepares them, but that doesn't mean it doesn't exist. I just haven't heard of it. I know that you can use something like LegalZoom for a very simple will or trust, and that it's probably fine. So th- that that was what I noticed too, and because I, I tend to be the type that wants to try it on my own, and I realize, oh sure. my gosh, this is too difficult. What what it makes it difficult is it is it unique to each person's circumstances? I, I imagine I imagined, and I guess I'm wrong. Just one, you know, ten pieces of paper that are kind of had the same wording on them. You just change the name at the top. It's, is is it not like that? The problem with special needs stress is if you make one small error then you've wasted your time and then you run the risk of losing the benefits, right? Uh, the SSI okay. or the Medicaid. And then it can be really hard to get the benefits turned back on. So just to give you a little example, let's say your son was, um, was injured. There was a medical malpractice claim and funds are coming to him in his name. Mm-hmm. So we need a first party special needs trust and you set it up and you figure it out and you think you've got it right, but you don't include a provision that says that Medicaid um, reimbursement has to occur when your son dies. If it doesn't have that, then it's not valid. Oh, wow. it's just, okay. There's all these little, these little requirements for each type of special needs trust that you can't get wrong. That's the problem. Okay. So I, yeah. So I understand. So like if I was to do it not knowing where the potential problems would lie, I could easily make a mistake. Right. But having said that, I, it, it is possible that a company like LegalZoom makes them. I just don't know. I haven't researched that. And I haven't heard of anyone using that kind of a service. So I don't want to say it can't be done. because it, it is possible. Yeah, but the, the potential for error is high, and the consequences of that error are quite significant. So it doesn't seem worth the overall risk. I agree. And you definitely wouldn't want to use a, 
like a notary or somebody like that to prepare a document like this because mm-hmm. it, it really is easy to make a mistake on a document like this. Do you think most people in your experience develop who, who have to say have some assets develop special needs trust or I mean go and get them done or do you feel like there's zillions of parents out there that haven't done it and should? Uh, I think that they're becoming more well known. My experience has been that parents of children with special needs are really good at researching because they figure out that the resources that are out there are hard to find and hard to access and there aren't people out there making it easy for them to find them. So they get really good at doing their own research and then communicating with each other mm-hmm. about how to work it and how to use the system and how to advocate and when to advocate. And so I think people are talking, you know, people talk about what you need to do when you're a parent uh, with a kid with special needs. Mm-hmm. Like you talked about earlier about, you know, at some point needing a limited conservatorship or the fact that a special needs trust might be helpful. But having said that, they are a very small tool and not that many attorneys do them. So, you know, unless you're talking about this and looking for the answer and talking to your friends about estate planning already, it probably doesn't come up. Okay. It's not your typical dinner conversation, I guess, is it? Right. Right, because you don't get together with other parents and friends and talk about estate planning. It's boring. You only talk about it if it's relevant in your life. You know, like, oh, I just did a trust. Why did you do a trust? Oh, because my dad died and there was a probate and it was really expensive and a pain in the neck. So we now we know we have to do a trust. Then it's kind of relevant and it feels useful to talk to your friends about it. But other than that, people don't want to talk about, you know, spending a lot of money death and dying. You know, right? No, it's not too exciting. Yeah, and and the person who should get this should let's if you so if you're I guess I'm thinking about the special needs individual. So if I if my child has a more mild especially let's say ADD or something like that and is getting some services from a school or something, maybe I don't need a special needs trust. I would need it if my son or daughter is going to qualify for or does qualify for SSI and things like that. Is that right? Is that who a good candidate Absolutely. would be? Otherwise, maybe you wouldn't need it. Right. No, and that's a really good point. I wanted to talk about that. So it's. Just because someone has a disability doesn't mean you need to do a special needs trust, 100%. So the only time it's really helpful is if you feel that the public benefits, meaning SSI and Medicaid, are critical. Mm-hmm. So sometimes there's enough money where you're not really worried about SSI and Medicaid. You know, you're, you're leaving enough assets where you feel like, okay, my son... As he gets older, I'm not sure if he's going to be able to work, but his brother's looking after him. He's going to inherit the house. His costs are low. Um, he can live on his own. And there's X amount of money that will be set aside for him. Mm-hmm. I just don't think he needs to worry about the SSI. Then you don't need to do the special needs trust. Sometimes people will use a special needs trust if they're worried about vulnerability, like if they're worried about a young person who could get ripped off. Uh, okay, sure. And so they want the money, you know, really locked up and hard to get to. But in a case like that, you really want to think it through and talk to a lawyer or whoever it is that you talk to about these issues and weigh the costs and benefits just to decide whether it's it's warranted, you know, because it's a big step and the money's locked up and it's kind of a pain in the neck to deal with it. So unless the public benefits are or unless you're really worried about the young person being vulnerable, it may not be uh, the right solution. 
So as a parent, you know, I'm probably going to be thinking about costs to have one done. What's a price range for a special needs trust? I think it depends on where you are in the, in the country and, you know, geographically. Where I see the price range is from two to four thousand, and, and that's Cali- in California, right? Southern uh-huh. California. I think that that's that's a pretty good estimate for what the fee would be. Usually, a first party special needs trust is a little more expensive than a third party special needs trust, mm-hmm. but you know it could be a little less or a little more depending on where you live. And I assume it's somewhat of a flat rate if a parent comes into an attorney and they can say, here's my situation, and they should be able to say it should be pretty, they should be able to get pretty exact, you think, with the price? Because yeah, things don't so. vary that much, right? Once you know yeah. the circumstances. Right. And just to, to go back to a point you raised earlier about when mm-hmm. the space trust is actually appropriate, if you have someone who's, who has some limitations, but the goal is for them to have as much autonomy as possible, right? And you've been working very hard to encourage independence and autonomy, and the young person is really aware and sensitive of that, then the special needs trust can be seen as something damaging to self-esteem or ego. Ah, if, If that young person finds out at 28 or 29, that his money is locked up in this special needs trust. And he Googled special needs trust and found out what the implications are. But his brothers is went to him outright. And so there are powerful emotional issues tied to that. Sure. Yeah. Okay. I understand what you're saying there. Um, I want to turn a little bit to your personal backstory. So you got involved in elder law specifically because of your mother. Do you mind talking a little bit about that? No, not at all. I, I had never heard of elder law. I didn't even know that elder law was a thing in law school. So when I was 19 or 20, my mom had a traumatic brain injury and recovered to about 80% of her old self. And then not long after that, she manifested the signs of a neurodegenerative disease. Mm-hmm. At the time, I didn't know what it was, and her doctors didn't know what it was. It turned out to be something called Lewy body disease, which is like a little bit like Parkinson's and Alzheimer's put together. So it's, it's a miserable disease, and there was a very early onset. She was only 49 when uh, she's yeah. hmm. And there's a cognitive decline. Um, uh, you grow more frail over time. There's a shuffling gait, which leads to fall risk. There's a tremor like Parkinson's and a a host of other issues. And uh, long story short, she was, she was ill with that, that disease for about 10 years. Mm -hmm. And I just found it overwhelming. I mean, I thought I was, I was young and strong and uh, motivated to take care of her and any issues that came up. And I was working hard to find answers. I was calling, I was researching, asking for help. And I, I just couldn't find help. I mean, I couldn't find smart people that knew the answers or I found people and their answers were very flip. Like, Mm -hmm. Oh, she has this condition, put her on Medi-Cal. And then what they meant was put her in a nursing home. But Uh, that wasn't the answer. That's that. I did not want to do that. I didn't consider that a possibility. And anyways, I just thought it was unreasonably difficult to, to find help. And 
even during law school, I couldn't find good help. And so I got into elder law once I found out that there was such a thing. And I like it. And well, now that you're involved in elder law and you're more aware of the possibilities, is there help? No. <laughs> so there still isn't. No, it's been it's been 20 years. And I think it's still the Wild West on the Internet. It blows me away. If you mm-hmm. if you search, you don't even know what the search terms are. You just know, you know, a parent or whoever has some malady and you're not sure what it is you have trouble finding the diagnosis to get the diagnosis you have to know how to find a doctor you don't know how to find the doctor because you don't know what kind of specialist you need and how to vet the specialists that are suggested to you you don't know how to find a place for a person to live when they can't live at home how do you pay for it what does the government do to help help what are the eligibility rules right you find the eligibility rules for a program you don't know whether to trust the source on the internet you don't know whether to trust the social worker in the hospital or your friend who just went through it, but doesn't seem to really understand it. I mean, it's just, I think it's preposterous that there isn't a better resource out there for people. So John, we're coming towards the end of our time here on the show. I would like to ask what, what do you see for the future for special needs trust or an elder law in general? Is it changing or does it seem like it's going to just stay the way it is? Uh, well, special needs trusts are changing because I think that the able serve a really useful purpose and kind of augment what the special needs trust can do. And so very briefly, an able account is a way that a person with a disability who has SSI and Medicaid mm-hmm. can still shelter money and access it themselves. And so we can talk about that another time if you like, but... That's a very good way for someone with a disability to have access to a, a pot of money. And then their parents can still set up something like special needs trust to cover the inheritance when they die. So the movement is towards more autonomy for people with disabilities in terms of financial autonomy when they have SSI and Medicaid, which I think is the right thing. That's great. Mm-hmm. As far as elder law, there's just our population is aging and the care environments that are out there are pretty awful. And luckily there are a few small movements towards making care environments more like homes and less like institutions. And so if those movements gain traction, then we'll be in much better shape in five or 10 years. John Lansing, thanks so much for your time and all your fantastic information today. My pleasure. Thanks for listening to another edition of Special Education Matters. For more information, including show notes, head to our website, csnlg.com slash listen. And if you like what you hear, please uh, consider giving us a review on iTunes. Those reviews bring us lots of happiness. I'm your host, Michael Bull, and we will talk again soon.